Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Experience what you didn't learn in school, how to integrate what you did learn, and how to bring it all together in one powerful operating system. That is neural reconditioning. You'll learn to assess movement purposefully, understand the implications of the neurological system, recognize and reduce threat, clarify the proprioceptive map, identify hardware and software issues, reverse engineer solutions, build a three-phase plan, and build more robust humans. This is just some of what you'll understand after you take R1 Foundations of Neural Reconditioning. In times where people are being more concerned of where they spend their well-earned money, set yourself apart by delivering faster solutions and keeping them healthy and actively doing what they love. Our 2023 calendar is up and ready to rock, including courses in Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, Victoria, Halifax, and Grand Rapids, Michigan. Head over to reconditioninghq.com today and check it out. Whether you are looking for one unique piece of training equipment for your personal gym or facility, you need to deck out an entire training facility, or you need help with designing your optimal space, Matrix Fitness is there for you. A team of experts across the globe who are all in to help you succeed. No matter the challenge, the people at Matrix have seen it and know how to solve it, and they pride themselves on your satisfaction. If you are looking for help with your fitness or business goals, head over to matrixfitness.com today. You won't regret your decision. Do you work with hockey players of any age and performance level? Do you want to provide the best and latest performance strategies to help your clients succeed? Do you want to learn from the best in the business of human performance? Every year in June, the best in the business of hockey performance come together in one place and share their wisdom and experience so that you can bring your best to your clients. The International Hockey Performance Summit has clearly become the place to connect with the best in the game, and now, this year, it will finally be live in person and in Toronto. Join us June 9th to 11th in Whitby, Ontario, just outside of Toronto, at Elite Training Systems to celebrate the game of hockey. Registration has started, and you are a part of the first 30 people registered. You can benefit from the lowest price possible for this extraordinary learning event. To register, go to reconditioninghq.com today. Now that we've taken care of those that take care of us, on to the podcast. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Brad Stolberg. Brad's work explores the principles of mastery and well-being that transcend all capabilities and domains. He is particularly interested in the philosophical and psychological foundations of excellence and the habits and practices necessary to attain it. He's learned that whether someone is trying to qualify for the Olympics, start a company, craft a creative masterpiece, break ground in mathematical theory, or raise a family, many of the practices underlying fulfillment, sustainable success, and well-being are the same, supported by scientific evidence and available to everyone. 
is the author of the book, The Practice of Groundedness, and the co-author of books, Peak Performance and The Passion Paradox. These books explore the art, science, and practice of motivation, values-driven excellence, and maximizing one's potential, all the while realizing a more fulfilling and sustainable kind of success. He has a coaching practice in which he intimately partners with his clients to apply principles about which he writes. He is a fellow at the University of Michigan's Graduate School of Public Health. He lives in Asheville, North Carolina with his family and recently had a newborn baby. I am pleased to have him on the show today. Welcome, Brad, and congratulations for the newborn. Hey, Scott. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, I just finished reading your book. It's uh, been fascinating. It's actually kind of um, gratuitous that the two of us are talking because after reading your book, I'm like, there's so many synergies in the way the two of us think. So it'll be fun to, to walk down your path. Um, you grew you grew up where and uh, what were you dreaming about being when you were a little boy? I grew up in a suburb of Detroit, Michigan. And I was pretty sports obsessed, like a stereotypical Midwestern boy, I guess. Um, so perhaps I had an astronaut phase in there, but um, pretty swiftly I was playing against myself in the basement on the Little Tikes hoop, pretending that I was both teams playing basketball. <laughs> and um, basketball is the game that I loved most growing up. And um, yeah, I'd say I probably wanted to be a professional basketball player through sophomore year of high school and then realized that um, reality was setting in. I'm a six foot Jewish kid and um, it wasn't going to happen. <laughs> but um, I was also pretty good at football. And around that time, I, I decided to specialize in football just because of my, my size and my strength was more built for that sport. Uh, so uh, focused on football pretty seriously and then shifted to, to more intellectual uh, pursuits in, in, in undergraduate school. What, um, what's in, like, who's inspiring you as you're growing up? Is it your parents? Is it friends? Is it sports figures? What, what is sort of instigating you and the way you think? I, I grew up in like a very, in the best way, like bread and butter, cookie cutter, middle to maybe upper middle class neighborhood where the kids would get together at the church parking lot and play roller hockey or play football on the field or go down to the basketball hoop and play. Um, and, and I really think it was just growing up with this, you know, smaller town, go to the same elementary school, middle school, high school, growing up with the same cohort of kids that probably had the biggest impact on me. It was just like mm. these, these kids that I grew up with. Um, and then in terms of, uh, in terms of other role models, I was close to my parents growing up and a lot of professional athletes, um, mm. which is funny because now, you know, I'd be, I'd be cautious about that, uh, cause they're, they're humans like the rest of us and they've got all their problems too. Mm. Um, Detroit Red Wings hockey town. That was like prime youth for me. It was just a dominant team. Um, so I, I remember, yeah, Stevie Y, Chris Osgood, <laughs> Sergey Fedorov, Nick Lindstrom. Um, a funny side note is, um, for a summer, I, I hardly could even say dated because we were like freshmen in high school, but I had a fling with Vladimir Konstantinov's daughter. Uh, so I was very much like growing up in the center of that in sports, right? The Pistons right. were starting to get good again. It's just a sports town where I grew up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you ever go to a wings game? Oh yeah. Went to plenty oh, yeah. of Wings games, yeah. went to the Pistons games. Um, cause you know, and I don't know how much you know about suburban Detroit, but there's, um, 
you know, it's an auto, auto town, right? Mm-hmm. The, the big three American auto manufacturers are there. And as a result, there was never public transportation built because mm-hmm. that competes with cars. Right. And wow. there's not much to do around Detroit other than go to sporting events, especially when I was growing up. Detroit's had a nice revitalization as of, as of late. Um, so that was like, that was life. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to the Piston game or you go to the Tigers or the Red Wing game. Um, so that, that was my childhood. Pretty. Well, it's been a challenge city though, too. Was that, how did that affect you growing up? Like, the, because it was the juggernaut of the American auto industry until sort of late seventies. And then it started to really have some challenges. Does, was, was that, did that era affect you? Do you think as you were growing up and, or, or not? I mean, it was, I, I grew up in a suburb of Detroit, so I was not yeah. in the city. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that it, if it had an effect, it was simply that like, it wasn't a thriving downtown at the mm-hmm. time that I grew mm-hmm. up and, and it was kind of like sports were the things that brought people there. Um, but, um, no, you know, it's not, I I didn't have family that worked like in factories that were laid off. I didn't, I didn't have any acute effect of that. Right. So what's, what's informing your decision to go to university and to become higher educated? Is that, uh, your parents telling you you need to go to school or you have something you get really interested in and, and go after? Uh, I think it was a little bit of both. Um, both of my parents went to college. So I think some of it was just expectation. This is what you do. Um, I always was a good student. So I, I did do well in high school, uh, in terms of academics. And I went to a high school where most kids went to college. So I think it was more or less anything. It's just kind of like path dependency that that's what you do next. Right. For me, the biggest juncture at that point of my childhood was deciding whether or not I wanted to go to a smaller school and play football or go to a big school and not play football. Mm. Um, I was good enough to play at smaller schools. I wasn't good enough to play at most big schools. Okay. So when are, when does that quest for education, for whatever background reason you're doing it, start to shift into... Um, I need to make a living and what am I going to do to to put bread on the table? When do you make that shift in your head? Probably junior year of undergraduate school, but even then it was really pragmatic. So I'd say that, and I haven't thought back like this in a long time, but freshman year of undergraduate school, and I went to the university of Michigan. So big public state school, you know, 40,000 students, big, I was just partying. I was having fun. I was hitting on girls, you know, all that stuff. That was my freshman year. My sophomore and junior year, I got like really intellectual. Um, Mm. I got into the classes I was taking. I got into the research. And then around junior year, it kind of switched back to pragmatic again, which is like, I'm going to graduate and I need a job. Um, for, for like, like what you said, like, I need to be able to make a living. I need to be able to have health insurance, uh, so on and so forth. So I, I'd say around junior year, that kind of pragmatism took over. Part of the reason why I'm asking these questions, I mean, I, I always try to get sort of a thread of the background of the way people think, but, um, obviously you've made a career now in, um, sort of supporting people, uh, living a better life and kind of reflecting on who they want to be and what they want to do. And um, it's funny listening to you because your your process is 
I, I find typical in the sense that we are all sort of, we go through our kind of high school life and our formative years. And then somebody says, Hey, you gotta, you gotta get an education. So you go and find a degree and you, you know, enroll in the degree and you still haven't really thought about why you're doing it. And, and there are people who do think about why they're doing it in essence, but most of the time it's kind of like, I got to do something. And then you get through that and you're kind of like, well, I guess I should earn an income here and I find a job. So when you think of your own, practical circumstances you know when did you ever or begin to reflect on why <laughs> you were doing what you're doing and what you're excited about doing in essence so i had these two parallel tracks and and the track that i'm describing to you is the the kind of main track that i was on mm-hmm. but i loved writing since i can remember mm. i excelled in English, language arts, composition, on the standardized tests that I had to take, I scored off the charts on reading comprehension and writing and very poorly on math and science. And I applied actually to um, a very prestigious journalism school, Hmm. the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. And I didn't get in. And like most 18 year old, 17 year old at the time, I said, Oh, I guess I'm not gonna, I guess I'm not going to be a writer. Hmm. Um, but writing was always what I was good at. Like I, I gravitated towards course selection that didn't reward econometrics or math proofs, but rewarded the ability to communicate. Right. Um, even in my first job, I was always the person that it was a very corporate job, but I was always the person making the PowerPoint slides and telling the story to the client or writing the white paper. Mm-hmm. I was never the person building the financial model in Excel. Right. So it, it was like this very romantic, I want to be a writer, this intellectual period, junior or sophomore into junior year of like really like reading philosophy and, and just loving like the just intellect is an end in itself balanced with, well, I need to make a living. I didn't get into journalism school. I need a job. So I'm going to go do these conventional things, but I never let go of like that romantic thread mm-hmm. of writing and communication Mm. And what I didn't know at the time is that by holding on to it, I was in a way practicing for the career that I have now, wow. which is, you know, predominantly one hat as a writer and then the other hat is, is a coach. But even my coaching was born out of my writing. Like people came mm-hmm. to me because they said, I, I loved your book and I want you to help me apply these principles. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so it's like these two tracks and, um, and when did I make that shift? So, I went to graduate school after working out in the world for two and a half years to study public health. And in graduate school, it was, this was in 2010. So it's right when like blogging was a huge thing. Mm -hmm. And I also got really into endurance sports. So marathoning and triathlon. And this was a time period where everyone and their brother and sister had a blog. So I started a blog to write about my training. Now, no one read this blog, but my girlfriend at the time, right? It was (laughs) literally just going into the abyss, but I was regularly writing. And that writing practice stayed with me. And it was a hobby and a hobby and a hobby until it was slightly not and a little more not and a little more not until one day at age 27, I was able to say, actually, I think I can leave the relative stability of the corporate world and give this writing thing a real shot in earnest. 
Wow. You were sort of in the right place at the right time with playing with that genre or that medium. Yeah. And and it was that because it was still early enough where that worked as a sample. So when I started pitching articles to various magazines and the like, I could send them a blog post and it was still kind of fresh. Mm. Whereas now that, you know, that those emails might not even get opened. Um, so it was, it was really fortuitous timing. How does, how does writing, you know, using sort of the, the language of your book, uh, title is how does writing ground you? I think on the page and for me and how my brain works, being able to express something in words helps me make it more real Mm. And when it's more real, I feel like I can wrestle with it. I can make it malleable. I can share it with others. Mm. This is what I view my foremost job as a writer for other people as well is, um, I almost view writing the, the philosopher Iris Murdoch talks about like language shines a light in dark places. Mm. So I view writing as like this flashlight and if I can shine it in a place where people feel something or they sense something, or it's just kind of how they do things, but they don't yet have words for it. And I can put some words on that. Then I've illuminated that. Wow. And that's what writing does for me in my own life. So the first subject matter you were sort of writing a lot about was your own training and training process and things like that. Is that how, how do you, because inst- I just had Steve on the podcast a few weeks ago, but how did you and Steve meet? Is that through that sort of circuitously through that world? Yeah, it was. And I was never a good athlete. I mean, Steve in his past was actually like a really good athlete. I was a, <laughs> <laughs> I was a, an armchair athlete at best. Um, so I, my first bigger gig was for outside magazine and it was particularly covering sports science. So training, fitness, um, all of those sorts of things. And I had been reading Steve's blog for a while and I reached out to him because I was covering these sports science topics. Um, at first just to chat with him cause I felt like we were thinking about things in a similar way, but he was doing it from a coaching perspective then, whereas I was just a writer mm. and, um, yeah, that's where we first met and that's how our relationship started. Mm. So as that was over a decade ago, which is crazy because it feels like yesterday, but, um, I, I can timestamp it cause I was living in San Francisco and that's been a decade. That's awesome. What, how has his friendship, um, affected or, um, sort of helped form you in some sense? Oh, in so many ways. Uh, I mean, we've written two books together and so mm. you go through a process like that with someone and, and you can't help, but, but learn from them and, and have their imprint all over you. Um, I think that, you know, like any good long-term collaborative partner, I'm more grateful for him than anyone but my own family, and I'm more frustrated by him than anyone but my own family. So <laughs> you can argue it's exactly like it's supposed to be. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so when does the idea of um, kind of beyond informing people on a subject, but but expressing a subject expertise from the perspective of call it, call it coaching or manifesting a better life, so to speak. When do you start to turn the corner on that? And the reason I'm kind of pivoting on that question is I want to get into, you know, your, your, cause there's, there's uh in the book, you talk about um, the, the time you sort of had your, uh, 
your panic attack, so to speak, in New York and, your, you know, the, the your self-revelation around being an expert, but at the same time feeling like you weren't an expert, et cetera, all this kind of stuff. So just kind of curious, how do you start to shift in? I'm, I'm going to express expertise on helping other people make better decisions for themselves. I still have imposter syndrome about that. Um, mm. I have a little bit more confidence because enough people have told me that I'm the expert in the room where I guess someone's (laughs) got to be the expert in the room. Mm. Um, But I came at this as a writer and a journalist first. And um, it wasn't until after my first book, Peak Performance, came out. And I also by then had a a decent sized backlist of, of articles and publications. Um, But I never marketed myself as a coach. People read that book. And they came to me and they said, Hey, will you coach me? Hmm. And at the time I'm living in San Francisco. So executive coaching is a thing there. I didn't know that executive coaching was a thing. I thought if you're an athlete, you get a coach or maybe the only people in the workforce that get coaches are poor performers, right? Like you get on a performance development plan, but the Bay area was very much at the cutting edge of, Oh, you're an entrepreneur. You're a founder. You're a creative um, operator. Like you should have a coach. So uh, a lot of people would pick up my book at the local bookstore and they'd read it and they'd say, hey, will you coach me? And my first response was I wouldn't know how to. Um, so my first couple clients I took on for free. Like I, I didn't even really call them clients. I'm like, I'm happy to talk to you about this book. Um, and the real shift for me that, that gave me confidence to even start calling myself a coach is there's this fellow that, um, he actually recently retired, but he was a professor at Stanford's business school. Hmm. His name's Ed Batista. And he taught the class on coaching at the Stanford business school. And, you know, here in the States, the GSB, it's like a top, top five, if not the top business school in the country. And he had read my book and he included it in his curriculum and I saw that or someone, you know, said, do you know that Ed Batista is like teaching your stuff? And I sent him an email and, and I said, Hey, I'd love to meet up for coffee. And he was very gracious of his time. And I told him about these people asking me to coach and he's like, yeah, you should do it. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I'm not, I can't, he's like, if I'm telling you, like, who else do you need to tell you? I'm like, well, I don't, I'm not a Stanford MBA. He's like, you don't have to be, that's nonsense. Um, and I still stay in touch with Ed. I mean, he's like, you know, in athletics, you have coaching trees and it's mm-hmm. not necessarily the same in like performance executive coaching, but it's not all too different. So I consider mm-hmm. myself an Ed's coaching tree. Um, right. And, and, I, and if actually, if I have two coaching mentors, one is Ed Batista, and then the other is your good friend, Stu McMillan. Mm-hmm. Um, these are coaches that I really look up to, that I know well, that um, I've been able to ask tough questions and, and get really thoughtful answers from. Mm-hmm. So it's a very long-winded way of saying, I never set out to be a coach. Um People came to me and it was Ed that gave me confidence um, right around Golden Gate Park at this small cafe to, to actually call myself a coach and start doing it. If that hadn't happened, what do you think you'd be doing? Probably writing without the coaching practice. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, maybe it would have happened anyways. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's no one's ever constructed an interview this way. And it's a testament to you, Scott. I'm really glad that you did. Cause it's got me thinking back to my past and like, there is this thread. So I have a younger brother. Mm. And I, all he's four and a half years younger than me. Okay. And starting at age 11, I would coach all his teams. So like, normally you have like the dad is the little league coach or the basketball coach, but I was right. the coach. So I was a 12 year old okay. coaching eight year olds. Wow. And I loved it. And I, I remember getting so jazzed about like working with those kids. Um, so that was kind of always there too. 
That's really cool. What do you, what do you, when you say I was really jazzed, what do you love about coaching? I just think it's so much fun to help other people get the best out of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me, like there's no, there's no better feeling than watching someone that you are coaching just excel. And in sport, it might be like finding their rhythm or gaining the confidence to do something they didn't think they could in business. It is, um, leading in a different way or having a really difficult conversation that they didn't think that they were capable of having. Mm. Uh, and just to see people own their seat and to get, to gain that confidence is really wonderful. Mm -hmm. And to coach towards independence where the person no longer needs you. That's like, to me, that's the ultimate goal and the best compliment, Mm. um, is to make yourself basically like redundant. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really cool. What do you think Ed saw in you? I don't know. Um, I'd like to think that in a town with a whole lot of jargon and tech bros and know-it-alls, you know, maybe someone that was like a little bit more cerebral and intellectual, mm. um, which in, in tech Bay Area is, is not common. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe, maybe that I've never asked him. I should ask him that. Yeah, that's interesting. There's this concept that I've run into that, uh, one of my mentors kind of brought to my attention, this idea of what he called spiritual bypassing, which is, yeah. I guess the idea of, you know, you go to yoga class and you check yeah. the box, you do all your yoga form, but you don't actually invest in the breathing and the connection to your body and spirit, et cetera. You know, I'm curious in working with, you know, those um, C-suite types of executives, how you shift them from spiritual bypassing the stuff that you give them to do and actually investing in the stuff that they, they need to do. Because my my impression would be not having worked a lot with that genre of, of professional, that they're often kind of like, okay, I've got to, I've got to do this stuff, but am I really doing this stuff? Quick break here. We'll be back with our guest. Learn the things you never learned in school and get your clients better faster. No one teaches you to look at movement contextually. You learn how to assess single articulations out of context, or you learn how to look at a common movement pattern. But what about what is really happening, the relationships, the codependencies, the synergies? Knowing how something moves alone is one thing. How it is affected by other elements or constraints, that's something else altogether. And they don't teach you that in school. But we do. Want to recession-proof your practice in 2023? Manage the complete continuum of human performance from pain to performance and become a neuro-reconditioning professional. Check out our 2023 calendar at reconditioninghq.com, including courses in Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, Victoria, Halifax, and in the United States in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And also the International Hockey Performance Summit in Toronto, June 9 to 11. Take care. Matrix Fitness is a global brand that recently celebrated its 20th anniversary and can be found in most local facilities supporting your community. One example of their commitment to community, Matrix recently launched a high school and collegiate development program. 
These are two-hour workshops customized for each group and designed to support the busy teacher and coach in implementing modern training principles. The workshop is designed to address three areas. Simple, not easy. Implementing strength and conditioning in high school or collegiate settings. Improving multidimensional movement and coordination. And putting the fun back into fundamentals. Simplifying physical education in the weight room for all. For more information on these programs, contact Wayne Burke at matrixfitness.com. And for more information on how Matrix can support your goals, go to matrixfitness.com today. We're back. Enjoy the podcast. What's nice is I don't think I've experienced this as much as others because there's so much selection bias in the people that come to me for coaching. Um, because I don't have, like, there is no coaching certification, or that's not true. There are. The problem is the coaching certifications that exist are meaningless because mm-hmm. there, are, there are random ones that people come up with. You know, you attend my two-week seminar and pay me $6,000 and I'll call you a XYZ certified coach. So I get over that by saying, Hey, like this is kind of the wild West. And the credential that I can give you is one of my three books. And it's mandatory for new clients that they've read at least one of my three books. Hmm. And what that does is it, it really helps people kind of know what they're signing up for. And oftentimes someone will read that book and say, you know, I'm really glad I read the book, but I don't think you are the right coach for me Hmm. Uh, because my approach is so like down at the ground level, put your hands in the dirt, carry water, chop wood. Mm -hmm. And, um, everyone's different. I have some clients that like try really hard just to intellectualize everything. And, you know, the example that I use similar to yours is like talking about meditation is not the same thing as meditating. Right. as much as you wish it were. <laughs> um, and that's everyone. That's me. I'm sure that's you in some domains. So I think mm-hmm. a part of being a good coach is also being patient with people and just you know, walking that road with them from the, the intellectualizing the thing to actually doing. Mm. doing the thing. What have you found has been, um, I know it's, it's hard sometimes to pull out of the thin air of, of experience, the, the one or two nuggets, but I'm curious if, if you've seen a common thread of limitation that your client often has with self-care, like what, what is the driving factor that often compromises their own taking care of them versus others? I think there's two things. I think the first is, and this is predominantly amongst the men that I coach, trying to optimize self-care and optimize recovery. And then it no longer becomes self-care recovery. It actually just becomes like trying to win at this game, Mm. you know, have the perfect whoop score, the perfect aura ring score, um, getting really caught up in the, the metrics around these kinds of practices Mm -hmm. instead of realizing that you can feel your way into them and you can do them for, for your own sake. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll never have a podcast that's sponsored by Whoop. I hope your podcast isn't sponsored by Whoop. Um, it isn't right now, I guess. <laughs> because um, because all my coaching, all my male coaching clients come to me wearing like Whoops and within six months, like they don't wear it anymore. Um, mm. So that's a big barrier, particularly for the men is like trying to be great at everything, mm. even though these aren't things to be great at. And then, um, for the women, it is kind of the opposite. And this is very much along like gender stereotypes, but I think that there's, there's a reason that some stereotypes exist is just having the confidence to, to carve out time 
to, to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. And then maybe the umbrella that connects both is to realize there's a difference between short-term optimization and long-term optimization. Mm. And those two things are often competing with each other. Right. So the, the example that I use with clients to kind of help them have this unlock is that if I wanted to completely optimize my life right now, I would work 18 hour days. I would down Red Bulls and espressos. I would do like a quick 20 minute walk I'd probably sleep four and a half to five hours a night. I wouldn't brush my teeth. I'd make no time for my family. And if I did that for a month, I'd probably have the most productive month of my life. (laughs) But if I did that for any more than a month, it would very quickly start to be a huge detriment to me. And if I tried to do that for a year or a decade, my like soul would suffer. My work would suffer. Mm. And, um, and that is an extreme to make a point, but the point is like, there are very real trade-offs and I think people can get caught up in here's what makes the most sense for now at the expense of playing the long game. Mm. That's really cool. Um, you know, do you find you get, um, sort of pushback from this, um, I get the feeling like a lot of people in in my own coaching and, and working practice that this idea of self-reflection is somehow um, contemplated as woo-woo rather than actually having a cyclical process of just, you know, understanding you did X, this did or did not happen. You're going to adjust this, these factors and move forward. And you just keep having this kind of cyclical conversation in order to continue to refine. But people don't look at it like that. They think it's kind of like woo-woo or something. So, you know, what has been your um, experience with that in terms of people's pushback on the idea of being more internally reflective? I think it comes back to something that you said earlier, Scott, which is this notion of the spiritual bypass. So what's woo-woo is doing it in that way. Right. You know, listening to a, a podcast with some guru and then suddenly looking everyone in the eyes when you meet them and locking and making eye contact and smiling just because you think that's what like a reflective or spiritual person ought to do. Mm-hmm. That to me is woo-woo. Um, doing the actual day in and day out work of reflection, of getting to know yourself, getting to know your community better um, yeah, like that's, that's the farthest thing from woo woo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just like even this notion of spiritual practice or spirituality, like people hear that and they immediately have an allergic reaction to it. And I define spirituality is being connected to something that is meaningful, that is beyond your small self ego. Mm. And everyone wants that. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in your thoughts because both my mentors, I've had this conversation with my mentors and who've taught me a lot about mindset practice. And then my own experience with mentoring people is um, at some, if you back channel everything that people are doing, whatever behavior strategies and whatever historical framework or life context they've come out of, everybody has this center core of, call it lack of self-worth or questioning self-worth. And my question is why? (laughs) Because it doesn't seem to always be because of, you know, how you grew up. You could have grown up in the most wonderful of conditions, somebody else in the most terrible of conditions. And yet they all, they both have the same self-worth framework. It's just 
uh, the way it's ideated itself is different in some sense. What's yeah, your, take, what do you feel about that? I, I'm kind of curious. Let me take a stab at this. I think it's twofold. So one, I think it is biological and hardwired into us. Hmm. I think we did not evolve to be content because our species came up in a time of scarcity. Hmm. The vast majority of the human as a species lifespan has been in scarcity. So we constantly needed more Hmm. and you're constantly looking around the corner for the next kill. If you're hunting or you're constantly needing to gather and store food, if you're gathering, Hmm. it wasn't really an opportunity to be content because famine was always around the corner. Hmm. So I think some of this insecurity comes from growing up as a species in a very insecure, unstable environment. Hmm. I think it's compounded by the fact that in the Western world and now in much of the Eastern world too, we have an economic system that for all of the the great things about innovation and in, in, in growth that can come from capitalism, consumer capitalism has kind of like found that weakness and in, in perpetuated that insecurity by saying, hey, if you don't have this watch or that car or this many square feet house or this romantic partner, on and on and on, well, then you're not enough. So it's created like this false mindset of scarcity. Mm -hmm. And particularly now in in the social media age, like so many of those comparison points are fake. They're airbrushed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I think it's like both the fact that it's probably a fair amount of it is just biology and in our DNA. Um, It's by no means my area of expertise. I'm not a neuroscientist, but from my book research, like it's become, I, I have confidence saying that the neurochemicals and the neurochemistry that is the strongest is the wanting neurochemistry, not the liking neurochemistry. (laughs) Um, so some of that is like, you know, just dopamine versus serotonin. And it's more complex than that, but like we, we want more than we like and wanting Mm -hmm. feelings are stronger than liking feelings as well as then this culture that tells us that regardless of what we have, we're, we're never enough. That's really cool. I like that. I, I really like that contentment piece because the funny thing is that we're always, you know, everybody's talking about happiness and your, your fulfillment and contentment. And so this is supposed to be the arrival zone, you know, at the airport of life that you're supposed to arrive at this, you know, I'm going to be content. And the truth of the matter is we're not wired to be content. So we need to stop thinking about how we're going to arrive and think about how we're going to Strive to, to, yeah. to make it poetic. Yeah, thrive. Yeah. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a believer in arriving. And I don't, I don't think that like, I think striving is great. Granted, I write about excellence. I coach people. I think that there's a, a, a right way to strive or a way to strive that's in alignment with your values. And that has generally positive outcomes. And I think there's a wrong way to strive. Mm. Um, but I'm with you. Like, I think we got to get comfortable striving because it's what we're as a species. We're, we're wired to strive. Our ancestors that didn't strive, didn't survive to pass on their DNA. Mm-hmm. How do you meet your lovely wife who you've now had two little people with? Like, uh, how does that come about in your, in your life of writing and stuff? I, I met her in undergraduate school. So we've wow. been together for a long time. Um, didn't start dating until after, okay. but I first met her when I was a junior and she was a sophomore at the university of Michigan. Wow. How does she count? What does she do and how does she counterbalance you? 
She is uh, an attorney. Wow. And she is the ultimate, like, attorney's attorney, pragmatist. <laughs> Any creative idea I have, she sucks the creativity right out of it. <laughs> um, I see something and I see all the great possibilities and she says, no, here are all the reasons it can't work. Uh, and yet I love her more than I could ever love anyone. So it, it works out. Um, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, isn't it funny how that works? And I know a lot of writers like have, um, significant others that are also like very, uh, they're engineers or attorneys. Uh, so it's like, it's, it's very opposite, but, um, yeah, but it, it works out well. So you, as you're, Playing along this journey, you start to coach people. You're writing about this stuff. Uh, you write peak performance, and you do a couple of different books within the Passion Paradox. So, <clears throat> what are you what are you learning about yourself in this process of writing books, coaching people, and discovering about you in the process of doing this? I think that I'm no different than anyone else, including the people that I coach, and that their challenges are my challenges. Mm-hmm that that root insecurity is still there in me Mm. and that rather than try to make it go away, it's about coming to accept it and to embrace it as a part of you Mm. and just to let it be there. Right. Uh, I think that's probably the biggest thing. I mean, I, I talk about this with my clients often, imposter syndrome, struggling with balance and boundaries. I mean, needing validation, like me too. Yep. Like I'm right there with you. I think this is just the human condition. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if there is enlightenment, I haven't reached it. You know, I, I'll tell that to prospective clients. Like if you're looking for the Buddha, unfortunately, like I'm not, I'm not the right person. And, and if someone tells you that they are, then I'd be pretty skeptical of that person. If you, if you ran into you of, of 2010 today in a hallway and you were kind of introduced to one another, what would you say to him? Um, I'm going to steal this. I recently heard, um, who was it? I recently heard someone on a podcast give this answer and I've never been able to answer this question. And I think now I know why, which is I wouldn't tell that person to do anything different because if it wasn't for that person, then I wouldn't be this person. Right. Now the least generous me would tell that person like, man, you're not going to, you know, you're not, you're not as cool as you think you are. Be kinder, um, be kinder to yourself. Uh, you know, don't take yourself so seriously. But I think if younger me wouldn't have done all those things, then I I wouldn't be who I am today. Mm. What's your Achilles heel currently? Yeah. Um, Again, I'm going to be really cliche here. I think it's I think it's my strength gone haywire, mm. which is when I really get into the zone on something, I get absorbed in it and like mm. I am just locked in. And that is beautiful. And that works really well the less external obligations that you have. Right. But when you have a wife and two little kids, you have to be able to exit that zone. <laughs> And that's really hard for me. Yeah. Um, it's hard for me not to get irritated. It's hard for me, um, to, to gracefully exit that zone, let alone just, you know, do it, do it perfectly. I'll never do it. But, um, I think that's the hardest thing for me is to, 
to be locked into an idea or into writing and just like really going. And then someone else needs me that I have an obligation to. That's an interesting one. Cause I think a lot of people who have sort of an impassioned creative center point struggle with that. Um, and some would argue that in order to be really excellent at something, and I know I've had this conversation with Stu before, you know, if you want to be a, the best F1 driver in the world or you want to be the best to whatever, you, you sort of have to compromise everything else. Um, and part of me believes that, but another part of me doesn't. And there's another part of me that believes that sometimes we give in to that belief system, that that is what you have to do to be super successful. And I actually don't think it's that absolutism is, is, is necessary. What do you, what do you think? I agree. I think it's domain specific a little bit. Um, I think if you want to be like a world-class meditator or monk, you probably actually need to go live in a monastery. Um, and I think that, um, I think you have to sacrifice a lot, but I actually think it's unhealthy to sacrifice everything. Right. So I think there's a difference between sacrificing fantasy football and beer with the guys and reading, you know, trashy John Grisham novels or romance novels, whatever. But so there's that. And then there's like sacrificing relationships. Hmm. Um, even within relationships, I think they're sacrificing a marriage versus sacrificing a best friend versus sacrificing an acquaintance. Mm. And I think that all the sacrifices just get looped into all or nothing. Right. And what I found is that the people that sacrifice all end up not performing well for a very long period of time. Mm. The people that sacrifice a lot, but hold on to a couple other really important parts of their identity, uh, are the most anti-fragile over the long haul. Mm. And I think not fighting that in yourself. So my own coach and, and therapist, um, it was a huge unlock. I, I I've talked to her about this before. I don't know. This was maybe two, three years ago. I was sharing with her and this is pre COVID. So I'm, I'm writing in a coffee shop every day in five thirty rolled around. And I knew it was like time to go home and be a dad to at the time, my not even two year old son. And I was really sad on the walk home. I didn't want to do it. I wanted to still be at the coffee shop writing. I felt uncomfortable. I felt a little like depressed. And she said, of course you do. Like you love this work. You're creative. Like that's okay. You can, you can grieve the fact that this can't be your whole life and you can have those feelings and you can be kind to yourself and say like, Hey, you know, wow. Like it's harder than I thought it would be to be balanced and do this. It's harder than I thought it would be to have an 18 month old and have to stop doing this other thing that you love. Mm. versus I'm a bad person. I shouldn't be feeling this way, so on and so forth. And I'll tell you, for me, it's gotten a lot easier because my five-year-olds or almost five-year-old son is a lot more interesting and fun than my 18-month-year-old son. <laughs> but there are still times when I have that sadness and now I just accept like, yeah, I can't, I can't do everything that I want to do. And part of having obligations is like part of being a mature adult is having other obligations and that can be hard at times, and that's okay. Yeah. What What has been the um, hardest thing about becoming a father for yourself? Well, I think it depends. On the second child, nothing. It's been a joy, um, and, and it's been mm -hmm. lovely. 
the first, my first son, Theo, um, I was pretty sick with, um, obsessive compulsive disorder. I write about this in the practice of groundedness. So I had stark onset OCD. It was probably always like in me, but being channeled productively Mm. and then kind of went off the rails, um, when my wife was pregnant. So I was in a pretty rough spot around the time that he was first born. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'd say everything about that was really challenging. I had secondary Mm -hmm. depression to the OCD. Mm -hmm. So here I am at a time when society and everyone says you should be so happy. You have this new kid and I was feeling like pretty, um, anything but happy. Mm -hmm. So there was both what I was feeling. And then there was the fact that like, I couldn't even be happy about becoming a father. Um, so that, that was tough. People ask me what was the hardest and not to lay it all on you, but they expect me to be like the lack of sleep, but it was actually like the inability to find joy in anything at that mm. time of my life, coinciding with the time that ought to have been joyful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those things that I wish it didn't happen when I was in the middle of it. I saw no value in it. There was no value in it. And yet having gone through that and come out the other side, um, I think more than anything that has made me a more compassionate person. Yeah, that's a great, uh, I, I don't think people talk about that enough, especially men. I had a great, um, session on postpartum with three, uh, great athletes that I worked with and my, my wife was part of it. And, um, it's, it's like this whole idea that people think, Oh, you know, you're going to have a baby and everything's going to be wonderful. I mean, I, I think it's actually the majority of people that it's the counterbalance to that. We, we all put on a happy face about what it, what it is, but it's hard. It's really, it is a really hard thing to do and to go through. Um, part of it being that I think you have your own, call it sort of functional changes in the way your life operates and what this being does. But I I found it personally very challenging and that everything else in my life that I've ever um, had to encounter in some way, shape or form, I had control. Yeah. Like I could walk away from it if I had to, or what have you, you can't do that if you're going to be a responsible parent. And that, and that in and of itself is, I think one of the, the sort of, litmus points of, of, of that experience in many ways. Yeah. And I, I think in my instance, you know, it's impossible to know if like the OCD was brought about by this impending child or if it was just going to happen anyways, or if it's some conversation. Um, my therapist comes from the school of thought that it doesn't matter because like it's happening and actually trying to figure it out is just a waste of time and kind of feeding into the disorder. It's like, Hey, Mm -hmm you know, let's, let's work on what you're faced with. However it got there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that maybe part of the reason that Lila has been so wonderful and easy is, is just because like I my OCD is not uncontrolled. Right. So if my, my reference point is being pretty sick when my first kid's born and now it's being healthy, um, it, it certainly feels a lot easier. Like I'm able to enjoy it and it's still hard. Yeah. You know, we don't sleep. There's less autonomy. Um, this thing that I've noticed most with the second kid is, um, I just time for friendships has been harder. Like that's the thing that goes. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's still been so much, so much easier for me than, than our first. I'm going to read you your, uh, your purpose. So from this book, it's a little fun thing I do. So you said July 18th is your uh, birth date. So you're a cancer nine. Yep. 
Your purpose is to use your power and your ego to break through the resistance and fears of others so that you can intimately share your world with them, always respecting their space and never forgetting your own goals and path. Egoist, a person with more interest in himself than me, Ambrose Bierce. In Cancer 9, ego is all pervasive, especially if the moon succeeds and nurtures Mars' sense of entitlement. If Mars dominates, then the individual will be strong enough to stand up against the needs of others and do his own thing. The Cancer 9 challenges, challenge here is to keep their sensitivity and concern for others without letting it overwhelm their sense of self. They must not try to control someone else's direction or lose themselves in their they have healer energy if they can keep their sensitivity. Gifted with great magnetism, power, and sexual energy, opposition attracts them. Early in life, they need to learn to protect themselves and then not to become bullies in return. Access is all too possible with the Mars 9, but the only way they'll learn is by hitting a few walls. You're powerful and sometimes you may forget just how forceful your energy can be. Neat. <laughs> and it, and it was the same as Steve's. He just has a different birthday, but the it's the date numbers of the new, it's a combination of uh, astrology and numerology that I screw around with and have some fun with because I found my purpose in it. So I'll tell you the longer story at some future point. <laughs> um, what is the genesis of for the for the listener as we're coming later into our conversation? You writing the book "Ground uh, the Practice of Groundedness." Why did you write it, and what what do you what's your mission in that book? I mean, it's everything that we talked about, Scott. I think that it is my own experience with losing my own ground, um, experiencing mental illness. I think it is seeing many of my coaching clients who are conventionally quite successful, feeling a lack of fulfillment, feeling like they don't have control of their lives, feeling restless. And wanting to explore where this comes from and what, if possible, can we do a little bit differently um, to, to strive in a more nourishing way. Mm. In your process of working with um, different people over time, what has been the, I mean, I don't want you to name names. I just want you to talk about the experience. What has been the most powerful experience of change you've seen in somebody in a client that you you saw them as x and after working with them they're y and the difference is just so so obvious to you perhaps and even obvious to them yeah you know i don't i'd say other people saw them as x and then i see them as y i try not to like see any client as a certain thing Mm. because then that biases how i'm gonna work with someone okay Um, so I, it's funny, like I've never thought of, like, I don't have like a heuristic. I know there's, um, I'm, I'm, I'm buddies with Brett Bartholomew who has like his coaching archetypes. Like there's, you know, 16 different kinds of athletes or whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't really subscribe to that in, in my work. Uh, again, because once I pigeonholed someone, then like I'm going to coach them as if they're that person. And I think, you know, I subscribe to Walt Whitman's, like we all contain multitudes. Um, however, tons of big changes, uh, probably happens most often when people are in a position that they know deep down inside doesn't make sense for them, Mm -hmm. but they don't yet have the resources, the internal resources to to do anything about it and to shift. Mm -hmm. And then over time, giving people the confidence to shift and then Mm -hmm. seeing them in their new position, thriving, significantly happier, 
um, doing work that is more aligned with their values and, and as a result, performing better. Mm. Um, and then the second big shift can come with the simplest things, which again, in my world, it's not athletes that are coming to me is just helping people hone in their basic health practices. Mm. Can't tell you how many clients I just get to adopt some kind of movement practice, brisk walk, hike, 25 minute at home strength exercise. And they go from no real movement practice to a consistent movement practice. And a year later, everything in their life is better. Wow. That's awesome. So would you say without being cliche around that, that that's probably one of the biggest um, change, change agents you advocate for is, is getting, yeah, I think if someone doesn't have a regular move, if someone doesn't have a regular movement practice, um, that's a starting point. I mean, if that person has a disability that like prohibits them from moving, obviously you work around that. Mm -hmm. Um, But otherwise I try to make sure that all my clients have a a consistent movement practice, Mm -hmm. which for many people is just a, a daily 40 minute brisk walk. We're not talking about necessarily signing up for CrossFit or training for a marathon, but just something that is protected time and space to, to move your body. Mm-hmm. And these people are not athletes, right? But what they say is they have more emotional control. They have better creativity. I mean, it's all the stuff the research shows. They sleep better. Um, I think the biggest thing is just creativity goes through the roof, uh, mm-hmm. problem solving. Mm-hmm. You know, can't tell you how many people end up solving their biggest problems while they're at the gym or on a walk. Mm-hmm. What's your greatest, um, sort of to, to bring this to a, a completion, what is your greatest forward vision thing that you're kind of interested in now that you're sort of going, okay, I want to bifurcate into this space now that I've written these books and I'm doing this stuff. What is, what is your, your next version of you sort of look like? So I, it's probably, I mean, I have a book coming out in September and even though it feels like it's out of my system because I've written the book, it's it's very much the next thing that I'm going to be spending a lot of time uh, talking about and continuing to think about. Mm. And um, that book aims to reconceptualize change mm. as not a one-off event, but as just the ongoing nature of reality. Mm. And instead of thinking of change as something that we absorb and then get back to normal... Change is something that we're constantly in conversation with Mm -hmm. and we're constantly changing along with change. So the book explores what does it mean to have a strong and stable identity when everything is always changing, including you. So Mm -hmm. how do we solve this paradox of we crave stability and strength, but everything's changing always. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting, um, I'd love to pivot on that as the last question, but these days, change is happening more and more rapidly all the time. And I was just having a chat with Brett Bartholomew on, on AI the other day. And um, I was like, this thing is like, I don't think people really understand where it's, it could go to, but the way things are cha- changing, it seems like it almost creates anxiety in all of us that we have to somehow keep up with this. So what's your counsel to your, to your clients around that level of change and the speed at which things seem to be changing now? That A, there have been other step changes in the past and everything when it's first happening seems insane, like the internet, you know, for example. Mm. Um, And then B, that you don't have to have a plan or have solved change. You just need to be in conversation with it. Mm. 
And what I mean by that is like trying to dance with it. Not, not again, not solving it, not having a, a plan necessarily, but also not resisting it or burying your head in the sand about it. Now that doesn't mean that you need to go understand chat GP three right now. No, but like be aware of it and understand that. Yeah. Like AI might really impact your work. Maybe it's 90% hype, 10% real. Maybe it's 90% real, 10% hype and and only time will tell, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for your hour today. It's been really nice to meet you, Brad. I hope we run into each other face to face one day and I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you, Scott. I really enjoyed getting the chance to talk with you. Have a good day. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>